This morning we continue on into our Faith and Work series. We have been um, in this series for the last two weeks uh, before this. Um, Craig did a great job of, of giving us some theology and then talking about calling. Um, and so I think my job and then Wai Singh, who's coming next week, is just to tell some stories from our experience in the marketplace. And um, we do that this morning going to Second Chronicles 20. Um, about a year ago, I had the most anxiety-filled um, season in my young professional career. I was working as a project manager, asset manager for a real estate company. Um, the project I was on was our largest ground-up development to date. Um, it was a Korean, Korean-American um, real estate company that was, that was three decades in. So, so for the most part, um, you know, this project was the sum of about three and a half decades of effort, right? And you're building towards this thing, and it was the most anxiety-filled for three reasons. One, uh, we, had, we had tough market conditions. Um, we, uh, the, the project couldn't have been more poorly timed, right? We started, um, we started in construction as, as the um, oil and gas market pretty much bottomed out in Houston, and so if you know anything about Houston, you know that, that everything is, is based on how, how well oil and gas is going. And so uh, we were just outside the energy corridor, and, and we were building this thing as companies were letting go of their people. Right? <laughs> and, and along with that, Houston had seen a long run of, of growth, and so a lot of other developers had the same idea. And so we were facing demand-side pressures, supply-side pressures, and, and we were feeling the pressure. Um, secondly, as soon as we delivered the units, we fell behind projections very quickly. You know, by every metric, we were failing. And, um, and, and we started getting really close to, to really worrying about whether we could, we could even meet, um, we, we could even cover our debt payments. You know, so you think about, you know, this family had been working so hard, building team members, and then all of a sudden, the biggest deal that they ever go on uh, might be the biggest mistake they've ever made. Um, and then last, whenever you're, you're in a season of filled with pressure in your company, you know, it's, it's never just a project that, that starts um, putting that pressure on you. It, 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 all of a sudden, it starts to add into all sorts of interpersonal pressure. Am I right? When things are stressful, all of a sudden, there's somebody to blame for something. There's a lot of miscommunication. You know, and, and, and it's not only now market conditions, but now it's the, the people in the company that, that it, starts, it starts getting really difficult just interacting with each other. And so for all those three reasons, we start feeling the weight of everything that was going on. And a group of us, you know, worried that, you know, in the next month or two, we'd lose this building. Um, we started to get together to pray. And I remember this phrase uh, from the passage that we're, um, we're going to be focused on this morning. And... The phrase was, and, and Devlin just read it, is we do not know what to do. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Um, we do not know what to do, and our eyes are on you. And so I don't know what sort of professional season you're in. I don't know what kind of anxieties fill your day. But I do think that there's great wisdom in this passage. And so that's where we go. Um, so in this passage, there's this king. And his name is King Jehoshaphat. And King Jehoshaphat... Um, I mean, it's so big, and, and you know, just trying to figure out how does this tie to faith and work. Well, I mean, King Jehoshaphat had a job, and his job was to be king. 
Now, for all of us, especially if you've grown up in America and, and went to American public schools, you think, you know, that's exactly the reason and the problem with the monarchy. You know, it's like you can't really trust anybody. Everybody does a bad job. A king takes advantage of people. And all those things are true. God actually warned his people that that was going to happen. Um, but I, I finally realized monarchy at its best. And I did that by watching The Crown on Netflix. Are you, are you with me? So um, my wife made me watch it. <laughs> no. Um, but there's the episode with the coronation. All right? Everybody seen it? If you haven't, it's great. Um, so there's this episode with the coronation. And in the coronation, they talk about how um, the queen's job is the fact that she's ultimate re- ultimately responsible to God. And so through the ebbs and flows and through the different seasons of, of government, um, the monarchy... The reason why it's so necessary is because ultimately it reminds the country that there's ultimate authority. And the king um, has, has Jehoshaphat has, has two key functions. One, he's supposed to ensure the security of his people. And two, he's supposed to establish justice. And if there's things that we really want and we need, it's security and, and, and the fact that, to believe that we could um, really truly believe that there's justice in our, in our land. And that was his job. But his job was hard. And his, his job is hard um, because of, of two key things. One, people are hard, right? If you're in your company, I mean, so I've heard this thing said that um, people, people sign up for jobs because of the opportunity, but they leave because of the people, right? How many jobs have you left because you're just trying to run away from your boss? You know, I've done it. Um, we move my family across the country for it, right? And so um, I got to say, in case this recording gets into the wrong hands, it wasn't my last job. Um, so, so, um, so infighting was so prevalent in this, in, in this tiny nation, right? By the time that Jehoshaphat was king, there was now northern kingdom Israel and there was, there was um, southern kingdom of Judah, you know, everyone was always trying to angle for power. Everyone was trying to prove to, um, you know, was trying to win the people and win the support of the armies. You know, infighting um, was a big reason why being king in this land was just super, super difficult. And along with that, the other reason why it was difficult being king of, of Judah um, was because he, um, they lived in a land of, of, of real geographical difficulty. Now, if you imagine where, you know, current, present-day Israel is, it sits between um, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Um, at, at, during biblical times, it, it was the center of, of major trade routes that flew through the continent. Now, what do we know about land where, where trade flows? I mean, it's, it's very valuable land. And so everyone is always trying to jostle for power. So um, if you're reading scriptures... You know, even just like kind of big picture stuff that we've, I've heard it said that, that there are um, cat kingdoms and, and mice kingdoms. The cat kingdoms are these larger kingdoms that, you know, we've all studied in elementary school. The Greeks, the Romans, um, the Assyrians, and, and for different swaths of time, they had full power over the region. And so there's these big cat kingdoms, but along the way, there's also these smaller mice kingdoms, right? And, and Israel and Judah, they're a part of them. And the story of Second Chronicles is about how a few of these mice kingdoms are ganging up on Judah. You have this contentious piece of land. I mean, think about it, even today, right? It sits in the middle of, of, 
of great countries and, and great continents. And to have control over this sliver of land would be a, a pretty massive deal. Um, and so back in the day, what you had was you had these, um, these, these Moabites and these Ammonites um, ganging up on, on little Judah. And the king who was supposed to ensure that there was security um, was, was solely the, the, the person that everything fell on to make sure that everybody was safe and secure. And so that's what he's up against. And that's what he's facing. It's a hard job. In the ways that I know, I mean, your jobs are, are hard jobs. You, so what's fun about being a pastor is that you're always inviting everybody into your content. Right? And so every week you have to, um, to pay attention into, um, into what, what people up here are saying. Um, but I, you know, while I was in real estate, I realized that the, the reason is the reason that so many people struggle to even understand what's going on in Scripture is because their day jobs, the complexities of, you know, everything that they're trying to understand within their industry and the markets, you know, and the processes and their competitors. And there's so much that you all are normally figuring out on a daily basis. And so, so King Jehoshaphat had a hard job. He had a super hard job, and, and he felt the weight and the pressure of everybody, of, of these other kingdoms, going after him. And so the response is where we focus on in this morning. Um, the response. And so it says in verse 3, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaim fast throughout all of Judah. He said that he was afraid. And this morning we're talking about anxiety. And so if I could just define it experientially, um, you know, unlike anger, which is more of a burning, anxiety is more of a constriction. It's a tightening, right? And the way that I've experienced anxiety um, in the past has been usually um, there's a fear that comes to mind. It's usually a future-oriented fear. And then I do my best to kind of talk that fear down. Try to be rational with myself. You don't need to worry about that for this reason. The problem is, around the corner comes a bigger fear that includes the first fear, but also responds to my response. And then, and then after I respond to the new fear, another one comes along. And it's like playing whack-a-mole. You ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? You, you take one fear down, another one pops up, and you're hitting that one. And then when you hit that one, another one comes up. Or if you've ever been at the beach, you know, I remember being like six, seven years old, and you're at the beach, you know, and you're, you're playing that game where you kind of just like get on your legs and you wait for the waves to come and you see if you could stand up against the waves, right? But then the wave comes, and all of a sudden another one comes, and another one comes, and like anxiety, just keeps on coming. And so he, set, he, he faced this fear, and his response was to pray. Um, and so his response this morning is I think what um, is what, what I'm encouraging us for our response to be. And it's based on, on two fundamental, fundamental principles. Uh, first and foremost, we have to trust that God is ultimate authority. Um, in his, when he starts his prayer, he says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hands are power and might so that none, none is able to withstand you. Um, trust that God is ultimate authority. 
And so there's two pieces to that. One, um, trust that there is a God, right? And, and this is hard, um, not only if you're a, a Christian, but also, I mean, not only if you're a non-Christian, but also if you're a Christian. But um, we're going to start with, um, you know, if you don't believe, okay? And so one, you have to believe that there's a God, but, but it's hard. And it's hard for those who don't believe, I think, for, for three reasons that I was jotting down. Um, one, it's hard because in the busyness and the monotony of life, it's hard to really spend time thinking on lofty things, right? I mean, if you do that commute and the, 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 the drudgery of that, kind of like waiting for the path train and then trying to jump on and then just, you know, trying to find a, find a way on and trying to get to your desk. I mean, there's just a lot that happens, right, that comes with your day. And to kind of just sit in the path train and just spend the time thinking like, oh, you know, what do I think about God? I mean, it's just a tough thing to really do when somebody's hitting you with their backpack, right? Um, and, it, and it takes space to really think about and really work through those issues. Um, I was, um, my wife had me read Ender's Game. It's like this sci-fi book. And the whole thing is you're, um, these, these folks are kind of traveling between different planets. And I was just thinking, oh, like how, how nice, this idea of space. And then I thought to myself, oh, wait, we're in space a little bit. You know, like we're standing on a rock that's orbiting around a star currently. And if you stop and think about it, like, it's pretty amazing. And, um, and it takes a lot of time to really get outside and, you know, to experience the divine, to experience wonder on a day-to-day basis when we're so busy. Um, and that's, why, that's one reason why it's hard. Two, um, if you don't believe that there's a God, it's probably also because it's hard for you to believe in things that you can't see. I was on an airplane once, and, and you know, someone asked me what my major was, and I told them Bible, and I was like, oh, no, they're going to want to talk about God. Um, and they said, oh, that's great. It's just I just don't believe in things that we can see, um, that we can't see. And, um, and that's, I mean, it's a real thing. I mean, we're, we're taught so much, you know, about uh, measuring things and, and quantifying things. But we're always so driven by things that we can't see. Um, the lady who struck up that conversation was just finished visiting her, her, was on a weekend trip visiting her boyfriend, and I said, you, know, you flew out because you, you love this person. Um, in many ways, that, you know, love is something that you can't see. Uh, my, my son turns three next week, and we have done a lot for that little boy since he's been born because we love him, and, 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 but so much of what that love is we can't see. And so we're so driven on a day-to-day basis by things we can't see, but yet, you know, when it comes to the idea of God, we say, well, I just don't believe in things that we can't see. Um, so one, you know, we're so busy that and we're so busy and the monotony of life keeps us from really pondering lofty things. Um, two, um, you know, it's hard to believe things that we can't see. And three, we're just so really opposed to depending on something else for our survival. I mean, the thought of that, the thought of having to depend on somebody, something is just so, so opposed to anything that we want to believe. Um, and so, I, I, I mean, I understand if you're, you know, you, you're here this morning and you just say, you know, that's something I, believing in God is just something I can't be about. But um, we really hope that you find safe spaces and safe people to really work through 
um, those things that you're questioning with. But also, it's not only hard for non-Christians, it's also hard for Christians. And it's hard for Christians, especially if you grew up in the church or have been in the church for some, for some time, believing that there is a God is difficult because you've heard it all already. And anything that even sounds Christianese, you sort of brush past and say, I know that. But, but it's also very hard. There's this concept that um, we heard about when I was in school called simplicity past complexity. Right? And there's a quote, it's a former justice, and he says, I wouldn't give a fig um, for, for anything this side of, any simplicity this side of complexity, but I would give my life for simplicity past complexity. What is he saying? Okay, so Jehoshaphat was a king who was in charge of taking care of his people. And it was hard to do that because he felt real pressure from the outside tribes that were trying to war against his people. His father, Asa, you might have a friend whose brother is named Asa, like I do. His father was also a king. And Asa, for the most part, was a good king, but he made one fatal mistake. He made a fatal mistake that when he felt the pressure of other tribes attacking him, he went off to the strongest people he knew, and he said, let's make a deal. He negotiated a deal in order, in order to ensure their safety. And now you're thinking, well, it just sounds very strategic and wise. And it does, for the most part, except that um, as king, what he was ultimately supposed to do was trust God for, their, for, for Israel's security, for Judah's security. And so there's a great temptation when we're facing you know, pressure from the outside to do as everyone else does. It's hard to really believe that God is ultimate authority. It's the reason why in our workplaces, you know, we're always trying to jostle for some sort of leverage. And we'll do that by, you know, gossiping behind other people's back in order to weaken their position. And it's fine because that's what everybody else is doing. And so surely it's, it's, it's fine for me. Um, it, in our heart of hearts, it really is hard to believe that a God is, has intimate control over what's taking place. It's hard to believe that he has real authority over our lives. I saw this in, in, um, in another job I had after college. I was working for uh, a fund of funds at the time, and the new guy, they would just make do all sorts of absurd things, you know? Um, so the first day, they handed, one of the partners handed me the keys to his conversion van because his family was going, going camping, and he's like, okay, I can't fit this to a normal uh, car wash, and so can you just hand, hand, hand wash everything for me? You know, all the good stuff. Um, and... One of the other partners just scared me, just terrified me. And I had irrational anxiety around him. I was trying to figure out what's going on here. Um, And the sum of that, my wife reminded me of this story recently. The sum of that is so me and my wife just came back from um, our honeymoon. And during the honeymoon, um, I'm not good with, like, motor vehicles. My wife uh, is is a better driver. My sister is a better driver than me. Anyway, I I was on a motorcycle. Not even, actually. I think it was a moped or some, some, something really embarrassing. But I, I put it down, and I think, I mean, my buddy who was there says it was a bad bike. But I put it down, and, I, and the only thing, I mean, it could have been really bad, but I just chipped my tooth, like, whole way across, right? Like, I had just an extra, like, half of my tooth that I was carrying around in Indonesia for the rest of the trip. But we go back in the Philippines. My dad knows a guy, you know, fix it all up, 40 pesos or something. No, I think it was, like, 40 bucks, right? So he fixes it all up, and I'm just, I'm walking around, um, tooth glued back together or whatever dentists do, and um, 
I had, a, I had a, my worst day of work was I'm back in the office and I'm just getting yelled at. I'm getting yelled at um, by my boss, and in the middle of getting yelled at, the tooth came off. And I was getting yelled at and holding this tooth while he was yelling at me. And I just thought, I hate my life. Where, where are the cameras? I mean, you know. Um, and, and I had an irrational anxiety around my boss. And I, I, I really was trying to figure out why that was. And I realized that um, as a young guy, seeing the way that, that people have leveraged the company... Um, into business school, into this, that, and the other thing, I realized that, that what I understood about my boss was that he, he was in many ways um, the kingmaker. If he liked you, you were on a fast track. If, you're on a poor, if he didn't like you, I mean, you, you're, just, you're just cleaning conversion vans your whole career, which there was a guy that was there for 20 years cleaning conversion vans. And there was an irrational fear that he had ultimate authority over my future. And, and that thing that, that supremely drives your emotion and your time is that thing that you believe to have ultimate authority over your life. It could be that deal that you're working on. Um, you know, that, that project that you fantasize about, the team that, that you work so hard to get to. Um, but there's a little bit of a fear that it has ultimate authority over, over your life. Ultimate authority at least over your future. I mean, I've been working so hard. If I don't do my best, then what does this mean for where I'm going next? If I don't appease the right person, what does this mean about where I'm going next? And, and those are the things that currently that we believe and we act from a place of that they have ultimate authority over our future. And so um, with this boss, I actually, you know, when I proposed to my wife, it was the day of, of one of my... Um, one of my most embarrassing failures at the company. I worked hard to put this project together, you know, invited people from out of state, made this pitch to, to the partners, and they just panned it. They walked out halfway through the meeting. And it was in that moment, I was in a Panera trying to figure out, okay, why do I feel terrible, you know? And I was like, I need to propose. And I told my wife, I, when I was proposing to her, I said, look, well, what we need to believe is that, that God has ultimate authority over where we're going to be. Um, that ultimately he decides our fate. Ultimately, it's not anyone else, no matter how big of a check they can write, that says where we're going, where we're going to be, and who we're going to become. Only God has ultimate authority over that. Um, And it's a hard thing to believe when 80 hours of your day are driven by a crazy person. Not to say my boss was crazy, because he might hear that, but I'm saying your bosses might be crazy. Um, it's, it's hard to believe that a crazy person doesn't have ultimate authority over your life. Um, but the response that Jehoshaphat has, that his father did not have, was to believe that God was God and he had ultimate authority. So what does that leave for us? Um, in verse 12, and I love this, he says, we are powerless against this great horde. Um, we are powerless against this great horde, and, and, um, and, and we look to you, and our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And what I love about that is it's not this great proclamation of faith. It's like, hey, this is where we're at, and we're pretty clueless. 
And so for some of us this morning who might say, look, I, I really want to believe that there's a God who has ultimate authority over my life. Um, but it's really hard. And, and, and what, what God is saying is, okay, just, just, just say that much. Just come to me that far and see what I can do. And it, it's countercultural in the sense that you are always, I mean, you, you are given every trick, every self-help book, every business book, you know, every nonprofit book or whatever industry you might be, you're given every book to succeed. And people are saying, look, here are the tools to do everything that you're supposed to do. And to be able to confess and say, God, you know what? There's limits to what I can understand. There's limits to what I can do. Um, but my eyes are on you. And so would you reveal yourself to me? It's a, this great act of faith. Um, but it's a, it, and that's also hard to do. Mainly because, you know, the, the stream of that we operate in is pushing us in a d- different direction, telling us to save ourselves. And so the question is, where do we get that power from? And this is where we close. Um, this power, um, this power, as Jehoshaphat is praying with his people. Yeah, Phil, thank you. Um, as he's praying with his people, he, um, he hears the Lord respond through a seer. And the seer says, do not be afraid, do not, do not be dismayed. The battle is the Lord's. And the response, if, you, if we jump down to verse 18, it says, then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and its inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. The response is worship. The response is, um, the response is be able to proclaim um, things that it was hard. It was hard for them to, to believe, mainly because it's things that still hadn't happened yet. But just to hear that God was with them was enough for them to worship. Um, because what does worship do? Worship aligns us with the reality that there is a God that's sovereign over all of our lives. It aligns us with the reality that my crazy boss is not the ultimate authority. That my current sense of feeling stuck um, in my job, in this position, is not ultimate reality. God, um, through a prophet, in response to Jehoshaphat's father, messing it up, doing as other people did. Um, There's this verse that he says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. For the eyes of the Lord um, run to and fro looking for those whose hearts are fully surrendered to him. And that's, that's what's hard to believe on a day when nothing's going right at your job. When you feel like you're being faithful and, and that person on your team just outmaneuvered you in a way that was really slimy. But what we have to believe is, is that God is the global headhunter who knows exactly where he's taking you. Um, and, and that's what happens in worship. If you're unhappy with where you're at, that's, I mean, what we believe in worship is as we cry out, he shows us 
either that he's called us there or it's only for a season or he's going to empower us there I mean there is there there have been many dark days at your desk thinking when is this going to end and in worship we remember um, that he sees us he knows us and he's going to sustain us but what specifically are they dwelling on what exactly are, are these, these people worshiping about? Um, they say that the song that they sing is give thanks to the Lord for, he is, for his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. Um, and we've heard that. If you've been in church, you've heard that. His steadfast love endures forever. Um, I, love, I love this word. I mean, I feel like I'll probably use it in every sermon I ever speak. I won't, but I'd like to. Um, it's this idea of steadfast love. Um, and, it's, and the Lord uses it in Exodus 34 when he's introducing himself to his people. The two chapters before that, it's his people just making the biggest mistake that, you know, of, of I mean, they've made a lot of big mistakes, but, but one of the more memorable mistakes, they start worshiping the golden calf. And right after that, he announces himself as, as a God gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. It's a word that's so strong in Hebrew that you, you try to put steadfast love together to show, you know, just how much energy is behind it. Um, but the best translation I've ever seen has come from my kid's um, storybook. And, and this translation where it's, they describe this, this steadfast love as this never stopping never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That, that, that we, we praise God because he has this never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And for us as people of the cross, what we believe this morning is that um, we worship because ultimately our, our biggest and greatest punishment, God put on Jesus on the cross. And so every hard thing we ever have to endure is not punishment. It's not karma. It's not this is what you deserve and therefore you're struggling. What we believe is that every good and, and hard, every hard thing he's put in our way is for our growth and for wise and loving purposes. And I know that a lot of days you're at the office and someone's yelling at you and you're feeling pressure and it's 10 o'clock and you haven't seen your kid. And you're just like, what did I do, Lord? Just tell me what I did wrong, and, and I'll repent. I promise. I won't ever do that again. Just tell me what I did wrong. But what we believe is that you're, if you're in Jesus, that's not punishment. The Lord knows. He loves you. And he's, he'll empower you forward. And so that's our hope, that as we worship together, he'll remind us of how much he loves us. And it will transform the anxieties that we carry to know that he has ultimate authority over them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. We thank you because um, we feel we feel so forgotten sometimes in our desk, in our office, at our job. We feel like no one sees our efforts. We don't know 
what this means for our future. But we thank you because you're with us. And that changes everything. And Lord, you're, you're with us not as an impatient master, but as a loving father um, who longs for us to call on him. And so what I pray for us, Lord, is whenever we find ourselves beyond anything that we can handle, Lord, we confess and we proclaim the good news that you love us despite us and that you'll carry us forward. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.